0: Welcome to part 2 of the first exclusive podcast feature of The Legacy of John Williams. This is Maurizio Caschetto. I'm the editor of The Legacy of John Williams, a website dedicated to promote, celebrate and study the music of maestro John Williams and its impact over generations of musicians, listeners and professionals of both film and music industries. We are back with our interview with soundtrack record producer Mike Medicino, who is here with us to talk about Superman the Movie 40th Anniversary Edition, a new release from La La Land Records of John Williams' Masterful School for the 1978 film directed by Richard Donner. Once again, joining us in the conversation is radio presenter and concert producer Tim Burden. In part two, We talk more about the historical importance of the Richard Donner film and its unforgettable score, while also reflecting on the legacy of John Williams. We also present some exclusive unreleased music from this new release. With this new release, you restore the complete score from 24-track first-generation Session Master, as you told us before. And in this process, you also discover stuff that is completely unreleased so far, isn't it?
1: Oh, yes. Um, Which we didn't know if it had been recorded or not. But um, I forget exactly how this came about, but we saw one of the boxes, or once we saw the pictures of the boxes that had been sent to us. We could tell by the cue number that this could potentially be that, so we sent for it and put it up, and sure enough, there was the original version of the first part of the Fortress of Solitude sequence, which I'd had um, in sheet music, and then somebody turned it into a MIDI version of for me, so I sort of knew what it was going to be musically. But to actually hear the London Symphony playing it and, you know, this was a lot like in 1996 when I heard this unknown cue from Star Wars. It was the same exact experience there where this two-inch tape is playing and I'm hearing it and I'm like, my God. And uh, we just found something. Every project seems to have one of those et had a few things it was finding the theme park ride music yeah and it was that um the cue at the beginning of the movie when the spaceship takes off the, an alternate version of that et alone ET alone. yeah um there was this uh wonderful uh cue from close encounters called the approach oh yeah that ended up on, the, on that release so it's like every project seems to have sort of one of those and for superman it was really that moment of hearing that uh Binary Sunset from Star Wars, it was like that over again. Standing there in a machine room, watching this two-inch tape play and um, hearing this music that we had no idea existed. Yeah. And suddenly there it is. It's kind of like you now have sort of a vision for the whole release and a validity to the effort that you go to because you just don't know what's out there. It's just astonishing. You think you've found everything, (laughs) but you never know that you really have. So it's mind-blowing,
2: you know. And this is why Classic FM premiered it on their radio station. It, it's a very significant find. You, you have at the opening of the cue, you got the trumpets and the trombones talking to each other, and if you look at that it's, symbolically, it's almost like Jarrell and Calle yeah. talking to each other. Which I thought I may be reading too much into it, but I mean, it's that's a, it's an amazing cue. <laughs>
1: And it's just amazing that it's been sitting, you know, on a tape in Kansas for 40 years. Yeah. That had not been played since. Yes. That aspect of it just blows my mind. And, that, and that's when we ship it in and put it up and there it is. And it's fine. And it's been here. We just didn't know where to look. You know, that, that's the fun part of it. Because it's the kind of thing of when I was a kid seeing this movie, if you ever told me what I'd be doing you know, <laughs> 40 years later, I just said you're out of your mind but uh but there it is you know so
0: <laughs> i think it's fascinating because it reveals so much of the creative process and the working process uh in such a in a film like superman because i think that the the time that Williams spent writing the score was pretty pretty long he wrote the score in kind of six months maybe he and then he went to london in, in the summer and recorded the first part of the score and then came back i think closer to the December release date. So it reveals a really, probably, it's quite unique in his career. Yeah, he came over to
1: do the album Sessions for the Fury, the first concert with the LSO at the Albert Hall, and um, started work on Superman. And I think stayed until the, uh, the royal premiere of Close Encounters. So this is an early 78. Okay. And Then he went back and started writing did Jaws 2, came back in the summer, started recording Superman, um, and then uh, took another break because they had to wait for more of the visual effects sequences to be done. Right. I think then he went back and did other stuff in the U.S. in the summer and then came back in the, to London in September, October, and finished all the way into early November of 78. They were still going. So it was basically the better part of that entire year was Superman. Then had to get the album ready and then did a session to record the trailer for 1941, and then was, uh, let's see, so then into, into 79, and then he was back over there to do Dracula. So, yeah, a lot of back and forth. But yeah, Superman was a huge, huge undertaking.
0: No, because I was thinking about uh, the, the Planet Krypton alternate that we were talking before, or the Dome Opens alternate. You can almost build a, an alternate score for the first part of the film.
1: Very much so, yeah. very much so. And I love, I think finding this new fortress piece sort of completes that because there's a little motif that you hear um, at the start of the Jorel trial sequence that comes back in new fortress queue. Otherwise, that was actually some sort of motif that he was developing, but uh, now it sort of has a payoff. To me, that's very, very interesting. But uh, also we still, as the case with the original main title, we still don't know what that sequence went with. As far as I can tell, because we actually don't have spotting notes for it, we have spotting summaries for it, and it says, uh, Clark is in the Arctic, Clark finds fortress. Well, the spotting notes say, you know, Clark gets to the Arctic, throws crystal fortress builds. Mm. <laughs> so clearly, something was different. I think that the, um, the special effects of the fortress being built was not in this original version. I think it was more about him, the fortress, either appearing from a state of invisibility, or he just arrives and finds it. For some reason, it reminded me of how the castle appears in Santa Claus, the movie, which the Salkines made later, which has similarities. You know, it has a flight over Manhattan and it has this trip to the North <laughs> Pole. You know, the similarities there that they were trying for. Yeah. But um, something like that, that it was the fortress just, Clark just discovers it. But again, who knows? You know, the reason why material started showing up that hadn't existed before is because a ton of it was stored over at Pinewood for the longest time. Basically inaccessible because of um, things to do with, with the kinds and their organization. When Warner Brothers came on the scene and liberated all of it, brought it all back, that's when they found things like the Brando footage from Superman 2 oh. and all these Scoring Masters. Six tons of material, I was told. Oh my. And I still believe that in there probably are some black and white work prints of early cuts of the film that might answer these questions someday. It would be nice to get in there and find out.
0: Yes, I think even the helicopter sequence is much longer. It's kind of one minute longer than the piece in the fi- in the final film. It is.
1: And uh, we I don't think the spotting notes don't really reveal that anything was missing, but um, they just obviously tightened it quite a bit. Although certainly the process of Superman or Clark changing into Superman, you can tell the music for that part seems to go on a lot longer. So maybe was some more things there, you know, it's it's amazing to me that you would think that if something makes it as far as scoring, that the footage should be more accessible than something that had been cut out early. But sometimes that seems to not be the case where we get the things that have been cut out early because they're set aside, nobody touches them. Whereas the things that are make it as far as scoring um, end up being little scraps and they just get tossed or thrown on some trim rail somewhere, and then we ne- never know really where to find them. So it's amazing to me that there are questions about the movie related to the music for which we still don't have answers.
0: Yeah, this is fascinating. I think that Superman, the movie, and actually the Christopher Reeves Superman films have created a, a legacy of their own. There is um, a wonderful fan community on the internet, which is called Cape Wonder, headed by Jim Bowers that really, yeah, that he kept on building this huge legacy of the Christopher Reeve film. And actually, he was able to recover a lot of material, photographic material, but also, you know, pieces of information that happened throughout the years to to have a a clearer picture of what Superman the movie actually was in the making. Yes, he's, um, uh,
1: he's a friend. And um, I know he's in touch with basically everybody left who's uh, had anything to do with the film which is wonderful and uh, he consulted with us on all of these um releases that we just did over the past year and um yeah tremendous um resources he's uh, really done a lot to keep it alive and in fact i did a podcast for to wonder that was sort of a prelude podcast to this one that uh, that we, we where we discussed the original 1978 album and what went into uh, making that yeah.
0: the interesting things about this new release from La, La Land is that you actually uh, rebuilt the original soundtrack album as well, together with the complete score.
1: Yes, uh, which is something um, that kind of has new validity. I mean, I think people very rightly so have a respect for the um, configuration that the composer chooses at the time, even though that sometimes those decisions are made based on an unhappiness with uh, performance or sometimes even by hearing a noise that technology was not there to yet to get rid of it so the decision is made oh well then let's not include that cue but still i think it has historic importance it's only had the incarnation of being on the album master that was delivered and created in 1978 which is readily available so um so this is an opportunity to take the new material close to the first generation sound, and uh, reconfigure that program so that we've um, got that as well. And that became um, our CD number three.
0: Mm. Yes, I'm quite actually affectionate of the original soundtrack album because it was one of my first John Williams LPs. I actually have a very fond recollection of getting that and uh, you know listening to it a lot, but also, you know, <laughs> Being a little bit upset, perhaps, uh, that some of my favorite pieces from the movie weren't there, such as the helicopter sequence. Yeah, it's
1: odd that um, for such an important centerpiece of the film, theatrically, that it, that it was left uh,
0: um, off the album. Yeah, absolutely. And also the the death of Jonathan Kent. It was one of those beautiful pieces of music featuring Maurice Murphy on trumpet. That was, it's really one of my favorites of the, of the whole score.
1: Well, this is also a problem with a score like that, where there really isn't anything that you would want to willingly sacrifice. Every note is just perfect. Every scene is scored perfectly. There's no just little um, kind of droning music or that you could easily dispense. It's like every cue has something happening with it in almost, uh, you know, every bar And and, and all of it put together just tells a story when you hear the music for the climax of Superman, you know that you're listening to the climax. It's very different from the music at the beginning of the film. I don't know that we seem to get a lot of that now where action music just sounds like action music. There's nothing to distinguish the beginning of the film from the end, but Superman has a quality about it where there's a such a strong, powerful narrative flow. And it's helped quite a bit by the way that the movie structured by the Krypton sequence and then the Smallville sequence and then right. moving to Metropolis. That helps it. But even once you get there, that's what makes, I think, the helicopter scene so joyous is that the whole score is sort of building to this just as the movie builds to that. Yeah. And then, we, then we go on from there. And when you get to that climax, it's just breathtaking. To hear what and a lot of that music isn't actually used in the film but um it's just breathtaking to listen to the music actually just creates a narrative um of its own and then reaches that amazingly quiet sequence when um superman finds that he's too late to save lois it's just an astounding score 40 years later it just continues to astound when you hear even better quality it's like you appreciate it all over again because now you're just hearing even more intricacy more depth to it. Um, so as much as I have time as I've spent on working with this music and listening to it and doing it every 10 years, um, <laughs> it's it, it continues to
0: impress and send my imagination soaring. Yeah, I can I cannot agree more with you about this school because it's uh, the, the way it builds, you know, anticipation and tension and release. I think that John Williams himself, in one of those DVD interviews, he talks about the rhythm, the... pump As, you know, the preparation for the hero to come out.
1: Right, a balletic preparation, he called it. It's almost like the Superman version of kind of like playing the first note of like the shark motif from Jaws. It's just a signal that it's coming. Yeah. It doesn't just... Appear out of nowhere, it's like there's a signal, it builds into the theme. It just mirrors what you're feeling when you watch the film and you've gone through an hour of a film by that point and you're waiting, f- you know, you've seen Superman fly out of the fortress, but you're actually waiting to see him in action in Metropolis. And everything that Donna worked to build that momentum and that anticipation in the film, John Williams captured musically just in such a perfect way. Yeah. I should also point out that finally at last on this version I actually didn't need the original soundtrack album master for anything so for the first time we finally had the actual first generation recording of March of the villains Wow and um, was able to use uh, put that uh, piece together from this source rather than just um, repeating the, the 1978 album master it's all one consistent element all the way through now. So uh, finally, as many of the uh, bumps and were not a problem, smoothing over analog edits were, because they were more audible now than ever before, but it did not need to be Frankenstein. So at long last, it's a Superman that's kind of can be alongside um, what we did with E.T. and Close Encounters the year before last, a total ground up rebuilding and restoration from the first generation material. Talking about the width of the sound of the Superman music, I should also mention that the 4K release of the movie was happening this year concurrently. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that um, the remix that had been done at the time for Blu-ray is necessarily universally liked. I've always liked the original mix of the film and campaigned very strongly that on this 4K release that they get the original six-track from the 70 millimeter releases um, and include that on this release. Not only is it there, but it is the default track, which I was not expecting, but which thrills me. And I think that it's absolutely phenomenal. And uh, it tickles me to know that an unsuspecting person that just puts the disc in will be listening to that track again, rather than the remix that had been done in 2000, because what you hear there is again, this amazing technique that uh, Gordon McCallum and the engineers at Pinewood had basically perfected in this area of mixing the film. And you hear directional dialogue and uh, directional sound effects, a lot of which is not present in the remix that they did. So um, that was very, very gratifying in addition to finding um, the first generation music masters to also have um, the movie get its 4K restoration and uh, come out with, um, finally,
0: the original audio as we heard it in 1978. That's fascinating, actually. That there's, uh, I, I like very much the way movies were mixed in the late 70s, actually. I'd love also to to listen one day to the original 1977 mix of Star Wars, for example, which was very, very unique. Yeah, I would love to hear that myself. I don't know how different
1: it was. Since that had been done in Los Angeles with, uh, with Ben Burt and with the um, Dolby people um, on it. But having done some of these repurposed tracks myself, I did um, uh, Exodus. And then also Tom Sawyer that uh, Williams had done the score for. Oh, yeah. With the Sherman Brothers. I took the six track from the 70 millimeter and did the repurposing for 5.1, where um, it's this process. There's a formula for taking the five channels across the front and doing a split into three channels across the front. And if it's done properly, you'll still get the imaging as if there were five speakers there. But... To actually work with that material and hear what they did, when it's actually shown in a cinema that's big enough with the speakers positioned where they should be, it's just amazing how sounds seem to move across the frame very, very um, discreetly and distinctly. Um, You can almost pinpoint where the sound is coming from. So it's, um, again, quite an important um, and revolutionary process that particularly the uh, um that team uh, in the uk had um had perfected at the time now that they finally used the original six track for the first time did the repurposing to 5.1 which also had split surrounds by the way it was the first movie to have split surround track and that's what the original 70 millimeter prints um sounded like very 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 different from um the mix that was uh done later so that was um a secondary victory for me uh, for the 40th anniversary of is getting that track as well as uh finding uh the first generation music and getting to work with it once again
2: when you talk about the sound aspect i mean i, I remember having a very early uh, it was one of those early letterbox widescreen releases of superman the movie on vhs you know whenever i saw it in a in a shop i thought oh my goodness finally you know it was great and you have this, uh, you know, nice Dorby stereo mix. And of course, you've got this terrific, in the opening title sequence, whenever the Superman shield comes on, it really is quite, it's very effective, that sound effect. But sadly, in latter versions, it's, it's been kind of muffled, which I guess is what you're alluding to, Mike. Is It hasn't quite been that same original mix, has it?
1: Well, certainly from the DVD mix that was done for the special edition in two thousand, that the sound effects were entirely replaced. They created that mix, but they, they had the six track the six track mag music masters, which is what you know I talked about, and then they took the mono dialogue stem from the mono mixdown and basically anchored that in the center channel, and then basically changed every sound effect of a picture. Yes, it's modernized and. I went and sat in on the Atmos mix of it here at Warner Brothers when they were doing that. And it's, yes, it's quite impressive and overpowering and very modern, but it's not um, representative of what the film had originally. And again, um, that particular team there at Pinewood just had perfected this technique and it just was stunning. When I finally got to hear it again, I just was blown away by it all over again. And I'm like, thank goodness that we at least have that. So again, that, in conjunction with uh, finding the first generation music, uh, made for a great uh, 40th anniversary for me.
2: She and i were, were talking uh just a few days ago about you know hearing this release i mean it really is uh, as it was touched on it's striking how the sound quality is so far better um specifically i think the golden gate bridge Rescue, jimmy you know even the likes of whenever you hear the you know the original superman album like super feats has that temporal edit you know from krypton quake which I always thought was—it's a, a perfect edit. I mean, I don't know if you both agree, but it actually works really well, doesn't it?
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Yeah, once you know what it is, it can be jarring. But uh, being as familiar as the <laughs> film as I was, uh, I'm always expecting it to play what you hear in the film. But
2: Well, it's, it's like, because, I mean, you know, whenever I get you know back to the Rhino release in 2000, we hadn't heard Krypton Quake until then. Um, because, I mean, in the film, that temporal and trombone blast is, is totally muffled by the sound effect. So you don't really hear it. I don't think it's used in the theatrical version at all. It's, it's a dialed out, isn't it? Oh, it's dialed yeah. out. Yeah, okay, I think so. Yeah. Yes, it, well, because it actually is
1: a real change there. We go to reel two there, so there was very little point in continuing the music is maybe what they felt. As you cut to that long shot of the sun and it's about to explode, you're at the start of the second reel. So um, it's not there at all. But on the TV cut, it was put back in. Right. And then, of course, about... What is it? Almost two years now. We got the um, long extended cut from Warner Archives, where they put a lot of the music went back in
0: for that mix. So that was quite interesting. Yeah, especially in the in the Krypton sequences. Tim was talking a moment ago about how Williams is able to translate musically uh, ideas and emotions that are on screen by by the story and the characters. It's a very interesting one in Superman because I think he was able to score not just the story and the character, but also the mythology of Superman. Oh, I've said that many times.
1: That's the genius of him uh, is that he didn't just score the that particular narrative he scored the whole myth i think he did that with dracula as well and i think he did it with star wars where it just sounds like sort of the score for any great mythological I- adventure that we've ever been told yeah um it's archetypal it's like the music's yes. archetypal, and it's as evidenced by the fact that the theme from superman can be equally applied retroactively to even like the Max Fleischer shorts and they, and they work. Oh yes. But um, I think there's a lot of uh, things at play in it with him. You know, first of all, that williams is a child of the 30s yeah and a new yorker so he was probably there for you know the first superman comics appearing yeah um certainly the, the world's fair appearance you know and the fleischer shorts were probably a very big part of his childhood you know the big city bustle he would have had familiarity with new york um there's just a lot of things i think he brought to it but what i think is amazing about what donner did with the film also but williams did it with the music. Is that it's really sort of like the great immigrant story yeah it's a superhero movie but it really is the American immigrant story I said this um, maybe on three or four recordings with you Tim and we talked about the leaving home cue. and as I said it's like the scene itself is the story of anybody who reaches that point of saying to the parents I'm moving out yeah And especially for somebody like, you know, raised on a farm, he came from a foreign land, he he lived on a farm, now he's going to the big city. I mean, there's just such a quality that anybody watching it can identify with. It's not just restricted to the superhero aspect of it or the comic book aspect of it. Also, there's certain um, overtones of religious mythology incorporated as well. That I think just make make it resonate even more, but Williams just seemed to capture that, you know, not just the superhero and the comic book action, but really that whole mythological, totally identifiable um, aspect that uh, Superman has inherently
0: as part of it. Yeah, he he's also able to reach back in that sequence to the. To the Americana style that he's very fond of, you know, the sequence is shot like a a John Ford movie in many ways. Many ways, and Andrew
1: Wyeth painting there, you know. And yeah. He's was standing with his uh, stepmom in the wheat field, you know. It's just uh, very painterly, and also though very formal, very theatrical. Yes. So that in, that in itself, you know, offers a composer a great opportunity to close each sequence, you know, um, with like a curtain coming down almost like like accidental play
0: I have found recently a very interesting interview with John Williams from 1998. It was done by journalist Ian Lace. In this interview, he's asked a couple of questions about Superman, and specifically about the Living Home Cube. Talking with the composer, uh, Ian Lace suggested that the piece carried a nostalgia for the American heartland, together with a feeling of the vulnerability, the essential loneliness of Superman. And he asked Williams if he had these thoughts in mind. Uh, Williams concurred and said, quote, But not so much with the loneliness. That's a very interesting aspect. I think I was thinking more of his lineage and his youth and the expanse of the country, which was beautifully photographed, to contrast with the extraplanetary aspects of his life. The London Symphony Orchestra responded marvelously to produce a splendid sound. It's a very interesting quote, isn't it?
2: Yes. I agree. Uh, no, totally. And, and you know, when, when you think about the arc and, and how that scene was shot, you know, Richard Donner he does a he does a wide shot for quite some time. Uh, you know, and then whenever Martha Kent says "Remember us, son," always remember us. Then suddenly, you know, it's a close up. And when you when you think about it, it's quite daring. And obviously, a lot's been said about that wonderful Luma crane, which I believe was quite a new invention at the time, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I'm not one hundred percent sure that that was a Luma shot. It might have been, but uh, uh, or if it was just a Good old Chapman, but uh, but there's something about the wide shot that he holds on the static shot for a while. There's yes. something about, yeah. to me, there's about the way the wheat's blowing around, that the farmhouse in the background with the smoke coming out of the chimney. There's just something so um, you know perfect about it. Um, totally. Yeah. Again, you could just do a painting of it, and hang it on your wall. You know, it's just just, just something about it that uh, and the music's so quiet and subtle there um and just not getting in the way of what's going on at all um until that big you know the goodbye hug and i love that they embrace and then look at each other and then embrace again i absolutely love that it's just uh yes. i don't know mm-hmm. there was lightning in a bottle on the making of that movie there really was and 40 years later the, that we're still talking about it is just astounding
0: i think williams himself is still fond of this school especially oh very much
1: that was the last encore at the Gustavo Dudamel concert uh, at Disney Hall a couple of weeks ago. It just was stunning. It's just a stunning to hear, and I, they did it in London also when we were there. So it's just um, something about it. I mean, I, there's I guess being American, there's maybe a tiny little squeak of extra pride that I'm allowed to have um, <laughs> over it um, for, for these two, you know, two Jewish kids in Cleveland. But, uh, but you know, but now what could we say? It's like we've had a British Superman, a British Batman, a British Spider-Man, so.
0: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: you, you, you know, over there, they have to kind of show us how to do our own myths, including how to record the music, so.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's so much said. I think it's worth mentioning, isn't it, Maurizio, that the the 43-page booklet. Yes, um, absolutely. You know, it's certainly worth highlighting. Um, you know, obviously, the, the cue information, recording information is great to see, as as you mentioned earlier. And then also, you know, there's a quote, uh, hopefully I'm quoting it right. I think you say, Mike, where Williams score for Superman exhibits like a thematic cohesion and a flow that benefits from the kind of theatrical structure of Richard Donner's film. I think I'm paraphrasing, but do, do you remember what, what you wrote?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think you got it pretty close. Um, the Q chart was uh, came about because I eliminated all of the extensive track by track material from the uh, the FSM book. Um, which, when I went back to those files and moved everything to a new file to start working on it, and started with just what was about the first movie, it was twenty thousand words. So um, it was a process of cutting down, cutting down, and then uh, so it's it's all based on what was in the box set booklet. Or the book, I yeah. should say. Um, yeah, yeah. But a, a lot had to be left out, and um, and that's why I maintain that the uh, the book from the FSM set uh, still has value. If uh, you need a historical um, reference that has a lot of detail, that book still has value for that reason. But I mean, for in terms of what actually accompanies this new three CD set, we kept as much as we could that was sort of essential to um, provide the right context for what you're going to be listening to, which is really just a nice, finely, nice, clean presentation of the score as uh, he originally completed it, followed by alternates, and then a a disc three of the original 1978 album, all in the same consistent quality across the board. So uh, uh, I couldn't be happier. I'm so glad that it's... uh, uh, at last coming out, and it also is important to me that we found this material and that it was actually transferred and uh, digitized and is and is preserved. And I, when I, as part of um, going through the process of cleaning it up and uh, and perfecting it. Um, I did create, you know, an archive of um, the finished cues that now exists within the studio for any future use that they might need for theme parks or or, or, or future work on the film or, or whatever. You know, we now uh, have that in super high quality, so that's that's a very important aspect of this process to me is that these things get saved.
0: I think that it's probably one of the best movies that would lend itself very greatly to our live concert presentation, I think. Yeah, that's under discussion. And uh, you know those talks are continuing.
1: And should it happen, I'm very much going to push to have um, a lot of music added back into it to make it yeah. a very different concert experience. We did that in small ways to Jaws and Close Encounters. But um, with the Superman, I think there's a lot of opportunities there, especially since the precedent is set by having some of this music already um, on a version of the film. When you watch that extended three hour plus cut, you see a lot of that music. So there's uh, some great opportunities to make uh, the concert experience very, very
2: distinctive from watching the film. Wouldn't it be so effective um, from a dramatic standpoint if the helicopter sequence was the end of act one I'm just trying to think, but that that would work, wouldn't it? Because I mean, the audience is on a high; they've heard the theme, um, and then well, would you guys both agree? Is that the good way to end the the first half?
1: I guess it could.
2: Uh, that might have, you know,
1: in, in my mind, I think it's after Air Force One is where where it will come. <laughs>
0: I think that it would be fascinating to hear live such cues as uh, you know leaving home or the trip to earth or you know some cues that would lend to a great extent to a concert with sweet presentation i totally, think that it's yeah. yeah it's one of the things that i probably i miss the most from from john williams is that he did just uh, the main title theme and the low theme as a concert suites but he never performed i think the, the march of the villains or Remember really? March of
2: the Villains?
0: I, I, I don't know. I, I don't have memory. I of... think he
2: did Planet Krypton um, at, oh, a, yeah. a, at a Boston Pops concert. Um, yes. Oh, really? Okay. Um, it, it seeks into something else. It, it might actually seek into the um, the main title. March of the Villains. No, I think, I think Maurizio is right. I can't recall that ever being performed mm. live.
1: Okay. Um, I think you're right
0: now that you mention it even though it lends itself to it. It does. Um, yes. It's a classic yeah.
2: march. Yeah, Totally, yeah. It kind of builds and builds and builds. and.
0: You know, I remember when listening to the soundtrack album as a kid, hearing the whole concert presentation of the theme uh, lend uh, my imagination to think about uh, an imaginary sequence. And yeah. that's, yeah, and, you know, kind of toy soldiers marching on or something like that. Yeah. And... And I think that's one of the greatest things about Williams' music. It has this enormous evocative power to paint images in your head, and not just necessarily the images of the films.
1: Absolutely does. I think he does the Harry Potter scores also. Hedwig's theme, just again, you come back to the sort of the archetypal quality. It just feels like this encapsulates any thought you've ever had about magic and sorcery and witches and wizards. Yeah. It's all there in this one piece. It, yeah. it almost feels like it must have existed already. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that it must be something from the 18th century that we just never discovered or 19th century and that it's existed um, in some way and has just then been, been unearthed. He just suddenly writes something new and original, but it has this um, feeling of history. It has the, the ages. You could just detect sort of the history of storytelling uh, on some of these pieces when he writes them. You just feel it. He just taps back into it um, to whatever the things that influenced the story in the first place. He taps into that.
2: Yeah, it's similar to what Richard Donner said about the Superman theme. And I'm, I may have asked you this already at NBC Universal that day in London. But d- did you ever hear the the take? Whenever Richard Donner came onto the stage and kind of ruined the take by saying he was genius?
1: <laughs> "No, or... it's an urban myth,"
2: <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> is it? Okay, right, right. My right, best
1: right. guess would now be that that was that happened at a rehearsal.
2: Right. Okay. Okay.
1: Assuming this is the original version of the main title, I've now heard all of the first takes i've heard take one and there's nothing worth applauding there it sounds like they all just got back from the rosen crown (laughs) um, (laughs) if i take nine they got it (laughs) my guess is that he heard the theme it was the rehearsal i mean look donner as giddy as you might get it's a professional environment if the tape is rolling you're not gonna you know blast out onto the stage and ruin a performance Right. You okay. know, so yes. I, I think that just makes for a nice story.
2: He, he meant to say first sure, rails. Yeah, it,
1: it does. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's a it's a it's a liberty balance moment. It's print the legend.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, but but he's actually right about the fact that the music speaks the word. Actually, it is actually true. It is true, and I
1: I hear this in other Williams scores also, and I don't think I've ever said that to anyone.
0: <laughs> yes. But, oh, I, but I uh, totally. but I hear
1: that in other Williams scores. And I wonder, I've always secretly wondered if he actually does that intentionally.
0: Oh, I think that he could very well be. I mean, Jurassic Park, Star Wars, of course, if you think about it, sometimes it seems
2: like the main theme,
0: Luke's theme says the word, <laughs> Star Wars. Harry Potter, I hear it in Harry Potter. Yes, Harry Potter too. Yes. Well, guys,
2: don't, don't, don't laugh, but me and my dad, whenever I was a kid, used to joke that if you sing along, Indiana, Dr. Jones... <laughs> that that actually fits it fits <laughs> it might not i mean it might be a coincidence but he he might have done that the piano you never know
0: <laughs> i think that's probably true that's he, sometimes he takes yeah. in the inspiration even from the words i think it's not that you know far away concept i think right
1: and but I, and i don't know that it's 100% conscious either so yeah. but the, but that's yeah. the thing about great artists is that they they kind of they do what they do and they don't question it, really. It's like it just comes. Any professional in any field just knows when he looks at a problem how to solve it. You assess the, what needs to be done, and you just, there's something about your craft and your skill. Part of it's learned, but part of it's instinctive. And you just kind of just dive in and do it. And, um, you know, if you're in a creative field like music, I think you kind of have to rely on that. Yeah, And, uh, you know, don't question it. And uh, I've said this even in my own things when I talk about writing liner notes, that that process, it always reaches a point where it tells me what it wants to be. I, you know, I start with an agenda and with a job that has to get done. But once you're deep enough into it, it tells me how it has to go. And, um, and you have to just surrender to that. And certainly I think a, a, a composer... Any composer um, will uh, would agree that that's true to some extent.
0: do you have to switch you know modes when you're mastering something rather than you know writing liner notes for 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 a release? Do you have different modalities of work? Yeah, it feels it's it's a
1: different hemisphere of the brain kicks in and i I've said this before I might might have even been with Tim. I don't l- like to m- sort of mix and match. I prefer to reach a point where I can take time off and write. It's hard to go back and forth. But last year was particularly exhausting because I did all of them. I did The Cowboys and um, Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List and Dracula and Harry Potter and counting Harry Potter's three Williams scores. It's a lot. It was a lot for one year. Um, but I had told people a couple of years ago to save their money and that a lot of things would be coming and a lot of things still will be coming. But um, You know, uh, I may not be quite as bullish about writing every single one from now on, we'll see, because that was was quite a feat. And particularly also Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List were difficult to write about. At the end of the day, I was quite happy with uh, what I came up with, as was uh, Amblin. So that was very satisfying, but they were hard subjects to write about, even though There wasn't as much musically to do on each project. They were certainly worthwhile releases for their respective anniversaries and titles that uh, La La Land certainly wanted in their catalog, so I'm glad we got them done and uh, and i enjoyed the writing process on them i was grateful that schindler's list was documented as much as it was yeah and that we had there was so much good information about the creation of that music but it's a hard subject to write about it, it you know in any case so by the time harry potter was done and dracula was done i i, I really just felt it the uh Um, on one hand, the writing experience is very, very energizing, but it it, it does sort of take its toll when you do so many in a row
0: like that. I think that the Schindler's List um, liner notes were especially great. For example, I didn't know that part of the score was recorded in LA. I thought that it was recorded all in Boston with with the Boston Symphony, but actually it's documented and you you explained very well in the notes that part of the score was recorded in LA.
1: Only one day in Boston, um, only only the stuff with Itzhak Perlman was done in Boston. It was weird. It's an odd score because I mean it was uh, done in L.A. That's where you had the uh, clarinetist come. Yeah, he did L.A. And then you had the chorus in Toronto, and then you had two songs recorded in Tel Aviv. But those recordings were not used in the film. Exactly. Yes. So um, so it was, and then all of that had to be mixed and. Blended together, and they, you know, they did that subsequently. So that was a very interesting project technically to go and sleuth out how all that uh, was um, was put together. A lot of um, work and a lot of research for a film that, relatively speaking, doesn't have that much music in it as compared to some of Williams's others.
0: Think that there's not a lot of uh, behind the scenes that I've seen through the years about the creation of the score in terms of you know DVD featurettes and so on I think that it's probably that Spielberg doesn't want to you know glamorize the the making of the film because he has a very profound respect of the subject right. so but I think that it would be it would be fascinating to to see some of the scoring session footage it
1: would be. And I don't know to what degree um, he was running around with his camera then as he had been previous. I think it was a very calm, quiet, subdued session. It's the same reason why we didn't put source music on the soundtrack release, because it just would trivialize it. Um, yeah. But in terms of like a, a peek behind the scenes of the film itself, I was very surprised, pleasantly so, when Susan Lacey's documentary about Spielberg came out, and we actually saw color. Behind the scenes footage. Oh yes, which up to then we hadn't seen it all. He specifically had us only see even behind the scenes things in black and white. So it's nice when you get the veil pulled back um, a little bit. But uh, I guess the the thought is to not um, you know over trivialize it. So I was I was just glad that uh, he talked to Richard Dyer so much, and um, boy, it's like there's there's an idea. It's like somebody should just collect. Maybe you could do this maybe your website could do it you know if we could just collect like all of the richard dyer boston globe articles on john williams it's like you'd have a great history put together right there
0: absolutely he had he had yes. a tremendous access to him throughout those years and williams was also very open to talk with him about the projects he was working on in hollywood it's always fascinating to hear the composers speak about their projects when their mind is still fresh
1: yes And that's what was great about... uh, I did this to a degree with the Harry Potter also. I wanted all of the recollections from him to be from the time. Yeah. And hear what he said. I was also, uh, being more recent films, um, I was blessed to have access to other people who actually played on the scores and to Conrad Pope who orchestrated and to to get their recollections um, and some immediacy to documenting and chronicling the creation of those three scores but uh being such high profile films john did do a lot of interviews and so we did get quite elaborate descriptions and recollections of things which was great to sort of include
2: it's uh it's key that uh you you get these kind of archive interviews as you both say because i think you're both recall, and it still makes me kind of chuckle that interview for the Jaws 2 DVD back in, I think, the early 2000s, where, where Williams actually says quite openly, I don't remember much about the film. <laughs> I know, that's <laughs> funny. Yes, yes.
1: It actually makes me laugh still. <laughs> I know, man. There's also an interview on a DVD. I don't think it's that one, but there's some other DVD where he talks about working with Stephen and how he says Stephen will remember... Um, you know, some third subordinate theme I did for Aunt Sally and some picture I don't even remember doing. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and going back to Superman, it's kind of a, really a coming full circle for me with this new release, because as I was saying before, you know, the two LP set was one of the very first soundtrack albums I ever got. And before that, Superman was actually probably one of the first VHS I ever got. Mm-hmm. And and even before that, I think that Superman together with Star Wars was probably uh, the first movie from which I recorded the audio from the TV set before I had anything in, like a VHS player recorder <laughs> or, a, or a record player. Me too. Yeah, me too. I did it as well. We did that. Um, because it was one of the first
1: movies I remember um, when we got cable television and this whole. Astounding idea that a movie would come on your TV and just play uncut and uninterrupted till it was over, you know, was such a revolutionary idea to me, you you know. But again, it wasn't till I think sometime in 83 that I first had a VCR Um, and up to then I was recording audio off the uh, cable television, um, you know, quite a bit. Yeah, um, and and, definitely. and telling everybody to keep quiet or doing it when nobody was home yes. or, you know, um, <laughs> yes. you know, or I also snuck the tape recorder into movie theaters.
2: <laughs> well, we've all done that.
1: Because when you would think that, well, it's something's being released and then it's not gonna you know, you're not gonna see it again for however long. So yeah, that that, that was just a <laughs> very innocent, happy times back then.
0: Yeah, but but I think one of the things that actually taught me to appreciate very much the music and film was was that experience of re-listening to the film and you know, really focusing uh my attention to the music and of course the dialogue as well but mainly the music i agree so for me the music was was the gateway for the storytelling and that was a big deal and it was later when i when i grew up that i realized how much the music of john williams helped to shape my own views on storytelling and on movie making and and so on so how much in-depth i think we all are to him in that sense i'm totally in agreement with that experience and i mean uh it's
1: just the fascinating uh idea of cinema being audio visual it's two things sharing the equal equal ground but uh you know this you know when you hear about the um questions about talking on a cell phone while you're driving and all that stuff. Yes, if your visual um, visual information is competing with auditory information, you can't grasp 100%. When you put them together, they might add up to something, and that's what cinema is. But if you listen to a movie and don't look at it, you will hear more. If you look at a movie and you turn the sound off, you will see more. Um, and, and yes. you know, so it's it, that's... I think one of the things that makes the art form more endlessly compelling is because there's always new layers of it to pull back and music is the only thing you can really take out and it becomes its own piece of art. Yes. You know, uh, you can't like take editing out and and then study it separately. It's inherently part of the film. But the music can come out of a film and be its own artistic expression. And and that's what makes that uh, so fascinating and why we still continue to talk about it because it's really music written for a specific purpose, but it also, um, when it's done well, can take on other qualities and have a life of its own. And and as we've been saying, it sparks the imagination to other stories and you just start contemplating the power of music itself, the power of storytelling, you know, mythology, all of these other thoughts. Yes. Uh, and also how, um, you know, you don't even have to speak the same language. You could put 10 different people in a room and none of them can understand each other to speak, but you can uh, put on music for all of them and they'll all comprehend it. There's no end of uh, the fascination that it holds for us.
2: Very, very much so. Yeah.
0: I think that this coupled with that idea that I was talking about before, about the music of John Williams being able to evoke images in your head, in your imagination, uh, even beyond the films themselves. It's really one of the most powerful things in what his his legacy is. You You just need the music to evoke a certain atmosphere.
1: And so many of his scores, you could take sort of the main theme. And if you could find someone who's never heard it and has no idea what the movie is, And just play them a piece of music and say, it's from a movie. What do you think it's about? They'll probably come pretty close.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) If you hear the theme from Schindler's List and had no idea what Schindler's List was, you probably could think of, you know, well, this movie sounds like what it is. Um, And certainly that's true for the theme from Superman. There's no no way uh, for it really to be anything else. It's not a courtroom drama. (laughs) <laughs> uh, even even though it starts with one but uh you know um <laughs> it's you know it's star wars is not um stanley and iris you yes. know. so i mean uh he just has that ability he taps into what the the essential um soul of uh the story is not the story itself but of what led to it being created and written in the first place
0: Thank you, Mike, for for the great work you are doing. Yeah. Thank you for this new, brilliant remastering of Superman the movie. And uh, also thank you for all the great work that you are doing in preserving the legacy of John's music. It's also because there are people like you that his legacy will live longer. Because the work that you are doing in archiving and preserving and having a, a methodology in doing that it's, it's so important and it's so vital to keep this legacy going on. Oh, thank you, Maurizio. And, uh, and uh, I
1: appreciate you having me and for letting me ramble on like this for so long. And I appreciate what you're uh, saying about the work because I really do have two sort of principles when I come to something. And really, it's just with any project that I get to do. Is Number one, I assume that this is the only opportunity someone will have to work on it. And number two is that I have to make sure that I create something that, when we are all gone, it will still be valid. And even if it's just in a library somewhere, at a university or whatever, if someone needs to know about something and wants to hear it, and read about it, find out about it, then um, I have left something that's equally valid, it doesn't really have to be redone. They may come up with new technologies to get the music to you, beam it straight into your head or whatever. but. Uh, you know, for while I'm working on it, I want to make sure that it's as as good as it can be and that the project uh, stands so when the day comes that uh, we're all not here to do any more podcasts, that um, those things will still be there to
2: uh, be found by others.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So I want to thank you also, Tim, for joining us in this conversation. Thank you, Tim.
2: Well, thanks, Maurizio. Look, uh, as I've said to you offline, I think the legacy of John Williams' website you have is tremendous. Thank you. It's yes, very, very nice. Anything to do to support it is is tremendous. And I mean, it, t- it ties in well with what we've talked about, because this is all about the legacy of, of John Williams. So uh, thank you for inviting me.
1: And Tim, it was nice to put a sort of a capper on our series of discussions about uh, the John's scores in London that we started um, with Dracula and then Harry Potter um, so this was nice to finally sort of put a button on this
0: whole uh, very interesting few months for me
2: yeah absolutely it's been quite a thrill hasn't it these past few months
0: okay thank you guys It's have been a real pleasure
2: quite welcome be well we'll talk soon thanks so much all the best <laughs>
0: Is produced by Maurizio Caschetto for thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com.